let's dive into our message. We've been talking about uh, trusting Scripture. And the, the great thing about trusting Scripture is the fact that it does exactly speak to what we've been singing about and talking about so far this morning, God's faithfulness. And because when we do trust Scripture to be what God intended it to be, it is a bedrock for us to live our lives in because it becomes something unshakable that continually reminds us of who God is. Now, I never would have thought uh, when I started building that darn chicken coop that it would lead to a bunch of stories that I could use for, for messages, but uh, it helped me grow closer to Jesus, and now maybe it'll help you too. <laughs> Because when I started building that chicken coop, I'd laid out the base, like, uh, which is just like, you know, some runners along the ground and some cross pieces. I laid it out in the driveway, and I put it together nice and square. I had my square out, and I screwed it all together and measured it and put it together. And it wasn't really hard. You know, it was pretty straightforward stuff. And then I moved on to the uprights, and I was going to put them up. And I was like, well, I might as well mark and screw them and make sure that they're, like, both square and they're, they're level. They're not, like, crooked upright, right? They've got to be straight because it just makes sense when you're going to measure your next pieces that are going across at the top. And I thought, hey, we'll just do this. And I made sure the base is square. That should give me a great opportunity to, to make sure that everything's level and square going up. But I found that I was constantly fighting the wood to try to get it both square and level. I could get one, but not the other. And I could always say, oh, like, oh, I got it square. Oh, but now it's not level. It's not sitting straight upright. It's a little crooked. And then I'm like, okay, now I get it straight and upright, but I can't get it square. I can't manipulate the wood to make it happen. And again, I'm building this with a crunch time. You know, the chickens are coming soon. Their home needs to be ready. I'm standing there scratching my head, trying to figure out how to solve the problem. And before all you people who are more experienced with carpentry and stuff like that go, duh, I know what the problem was. Before you know, you say anything, just I want you to remember this. The closest thing that I had to a mentor in building was Bob the Builder. <laughs> and he told me we could do it. Yes, we can. That's the closest. <laughs> so as I'm trying to manipulate the wood, Right? I'm trying to get both down, square and level. I look down, and my, my four-foot level, my big long one, is sitting on top of one of the cross pieces. And uh, I look at it, and I'm like, that's not level. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I realized, aha, my driveway's not level. <laughs> it slopes away from the house like it should. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness, all that wrestling with the wood could have been easily solved by just propping up one side of the chicken coop to make it level. So one two-by-four underneath to get a three and three and a half inches of slope over that short little period solved my issue, and I was able to now start building or continue building square and level-ish. So when it comes to our faith, though, our trust in Scripture, how we build matters. If we try to build our faith through what the Bible says, but we have a sloped or slanted or unlevel understanding of what the Bible says, think about it. Everything that we build on that foundation, all of our actions, our beliefs, and our words, will be skewed and will build a dangerous faith structure for us. And we can sometimes see it easily when we look at the groups around us that have gross misinterpretations of Scripture. 
that can lead to abuse or cult behavior or deeply tragic moments that are supposedly in the name of Christ. But there's a need for us to look closer, much closer, to look within ourselves to see if we too have taken scripture and have fashioned it in our own image rather than allowing it to be in God's image and fashion us. Because the ultimate goal of Bible study is not to do something to the Bible, but to allow the Bible to do something to you. And Jesus, when talking to Pharisees, he spoke very clearly, telling them that all Scripture points to him as salvation and life. The Scriptures themselves aren't that life. He is. And if we misuse Scripture, we build an image of Jesus that is false, that doesn't lead to life. And just I learned, like I learned about carpentry, I know it's true about sciences and all that they have to say, that there are rules and methods which govern them. And when we get to interpreting the Bible, the same thing applies. That there's rules and, and uh, methods that we can use that will help govern how we use the Bible and to do it correctly. And the term for this is called hermeneutics. It's a term that you do not need to remember after today. But that's what we do. We study the Bible and we try to do it in a healthy way. But unfortunately, an all-too-common way of reading the Bible is to place ourselves in the authority where we get to decide on an individual basis what it means. And this method is, again, words that you don't need to remember, but remember the concept of. This method is called existential method of interpretation. And what does that mean? The existential method approaches teaching the Bi- that the Bible is not actually the Word of God, but it's the vehicle of God's word. Now, you may never hear somebody teach you that, but it's taught, it's, it's more of one of those caught-taught moments rather than somebody giving you that, that explicit instruction. So how does that work? It, well, it creates a reality where the Bible becomes revelation only when properly mixed with truth. Now, think of it. In our current context, who holds truth? Everybody does. Everybody holds their own individual truth. And so if we were to take that idea of going, I I know my truth and you know your truth, and then we all look into Scripture, guess what? We're going to find that we have a whole bunch of different truths and understandings of the Bible. That we can look at the same Scriptures and we can come to vastly different ideas because your truth interprets differently than my truth. Now, often we can say that God is truth, But more often than we'd like, we overrule him with our own. We say, but God, if only you understood what I was going through. If only you knew the way I see the world and how conflicted I am when I try to grasp reality with what's going on around me, it pulls and tugs at my heart and says, this must be true, rather than relying on God to give us truth. So the result of that is an existential interpretation it's a mixture of belief and experience. And this type of, this type of uh, thinking often manifests itself in approaches to Scripture that ask questions like this. What does this passage mean to you? It sounds harmless to ask a question like that, doesn't it? But studying this, the Scriptures this way sidesteps what God meant. What did God mean when he wrote that? 
What does God mean to have that in there for us to read? And again, it may seem harmless and and sometimes helpful, but it can create a dangerous scenario. Now, again, our different cultural backgrounds, our different uh, individual settings might make application of Scripture a little different, but we don't change the meaning of the Bible to make it say what we desire it to say. And like in other disciplines, scholars have looked for best ways, best practices to understand the Bible. And the best that I know of is called the grammatico-historical method. Again, a word that you do not need to remember. Maybe we can better understand it as the inductive method. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, this hermeneutical approach investigates the original cultural setting of the text and focuses on grammar and syntax to understand what the author of the text meant when he wrote it to his original audience. So what does that mean? It means this. In short, we need to understand the text that we're reading, the scriptures that we're reading, in their original context. Or we can make the Bible say whatever we desire it to say. And we're talking about this today because of what the Bible should do and what it does today often in our lives is not the same. How might you answer these questions? What actually forms your belief in God? If you're to pause and think about it, all the things you know and think about God, what gave you those beliefs? Was it scripture alone that gave you those beliefs? Or was it the opinion of others that somehow snuck in there and helped form what you think and believe about God? If your beliefs have changed over time, why did they change? Did they change because scripture gave you a better understanding? Or did they shift because of consistent cultural pressure? The teachings of others, maybe, that you haven't matched with scripture. You've heard somebody preach it or teach it, and you're like, ooh, that sounds good, I like that. You didn't actually go to those scriptures and see if they were taking that scripture out of context or using it in its proper way. In the book of James, it says this. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For anyone, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he is like. That sounds pretty straightforward. Hear the word, do the word. If only it was that simple. We can hear something like this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, we hear that, and then we do it. Right? When filled with anxiety, tell God exactly what you need. By no means is that easy, but it's straightforward. And if we read a different passage in the Bible, you can read the story of, say, of Jesus feeding 5,000. And while maybe there's some lessons about faith and, and sacrifice and God as a provider, it's a little less clear as to what we're supposed to do. Are we supposed to use faith and sacrifice and God's miraculous provision to keep feeding people in 5,000 at a time? What are we supposed to do with that knowledge that God feeds 5,000 people miraculously? What do we do about that? 
I think there's a few considerations to try and work through as we read the Bible. And one of them is this. Have a clear understanding of how to read the Bible. A great way to read the Bible is to think through this process. And again, this would be that inductive process that I was talking about. And the first thing is this. And if you're taking notes, this may be a great way if if you're newer at understanding the Bible. The first one is this. Observation. Observation. What does it say? To the people who are reading it the first time, what did the author mean to say? Read the verses around that verse that really stood out to you so you can understand the context. Understand what you are reading. Is the verses that I'm reading, are they poetry? Are they prophetic literature? Are they like a historical narrative literature? What kind of literature am I actually reading when I open the Bible? Because you can open the Bible at different places and the type of, of, of scriptures that you're reading will vary Uh, they'll vastly differ. So what am I reading? How do I understand it that way? The second one is this, interpretation. Interpretation. What does it mean? When I read those scriptures, when I see it in its context, for its original uh, reader, for the original people that were supposed to hear it, what does it mean to them? What would that have implied for them? And then how do I understand that for me? What do I take and understand for me? And then the third thing is this, application, application. Because you've read it, you've observed it, you know what it means in its original context. You understand what God was trying to say to the people that first were reading it. And then you've seen how that can apply to your life today. Now you have to actually apply it. And when we approach the Bible with a sense of respect, honor, when we pause and reflect that it is the written word of God, we may become more aware of what, can it, what it can do. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we're lazy. I may seem harsh, but hear the positive of what he had to say. You're intelligent. You're smart. You can do this. But it's work to understand God's word. It takes a little bit of time to understand what he was talking to, what he was saying to people a couple thousand years ago in ancient Israel. We have to take a little bit of time to understand a different cultural context in order to be able to understand that. But you can do it. I know lazy seems like a harsh word. But it's like me taking the time to make a chicken coop all nice and square and levelish, and then I just drag it across the lawn to the backyard, totally messing up with how level and square it was as I try to do that. We can can make it all for naught if we just cajole it into place the way we want rather than allowing God to set a firm foundation for us. So what should the Bible do? Our second consideration is this. How does our observation interpret uh, and interpretation lead to application? And the Bible should shape our head, our heart, and our hands to be more like Jesus. So that first one, allowing the Bible to shape our minds, our head. We could ask questions like this. What does the Bible passage teach me about the nature of God, his character? What does this passage teach me about myself in relationship to God? 
And what does this Bible passage teach me about my life in Christ? And if we apply this, this, uh, this idea to Philippians 4, 6, which again was, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We could answer those questions like this. What does this Bible teach me about God's nature? God cares about me and what makes me anxious. We could say, what does this passage teach me about myself in relationship to God? It's okay to not be okay. And God desires to help me move from anxiety to peace. And what does this Bible passage teach me about my life in Christ, how I live daily in him? In following Jesus, prayer is in everything, it is, is an essential practice of worship. Prayer is important. When I'm anxious, pray. When I'm happy, pray. When I don't know what to do, pray. When I think I know what to do, pray. Prayer is important in understanding the will of God for our lives and working towards what he has for us. The Bible has a lot to offer when it comes to how we think and how we renew our minds to healthy thought life. Next, allow the Bible to shape my affections, my heart. So first head, then heart. We could ask questions like this. How does this passion speak to my feelings? How does it speak to how I love? And how does it speak to the emotion of hate that I may have? And for this, we could read a different passage of the Bible, which has often been a source of emotional harm when it's poorly applied. In Matthew 11, Jesus was speaking uh, about how Herod had thrown John the Baptist into prison unjustly. John had made some comments about how Herod shouldn't be messing around with his brother's wife and the king didn't like that very much, and so he threw him into prison unjustly. And Jesus was talking about that, and he said this in Matthew eleven twelve. He said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That, that verse has been used so many times unjustly to cause harm, hate, forcing, forcing others to comply. Because they read that second part and they say, in the violent, take it by force. They're like, yeah, we got to be violent in how we go about doing stuff to take the kingdom of God. They totally under, misunderstand the verse. In reality, when we look at the fuller context of what Jesus is saying there, he speaks about how we as humans are never satisfied. We have this insatiable desire to control things and take things by force. Jesus then talks about the, these different cities and cultures and people who won't repent, who won't stop doing it, who won't turn and follow him. And then he offers with a declaration about authority in a different way than violence and than force. He says at the end of, of that passage in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and, of lowly, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we read that in regards to our hearts, this passage invites me to feel the tension of living between two kingdoms and how to live that out. How do I live in the kingdom of God and yet live in a kingdom where the violent take it by force. 
This passage invites me to love God's gentleness in contrast to Herod's force. It invites us to to hate the damage that violence and force cause in the life of families and nations. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that violence is okay and to take it by force. Instead, he invites me to take his yoke, his burden, which despite my condition, I can find rest for my soul. So along with our heads and our hearts, we should allow the Bible to shape our actions, our hands. Do we have, if we look at that same scripture, do I have sin that needs to be confessed? Is there an explicit command I need to follow? There's an example of what I should do or not do. And how will doing this make me look more like Jesus? In the same passage, we could apply it this way. Have I sinned by using my own force rather than coming to God? Have I tried to force my way rather than God's way? If so, who do I have to ask forgiveness from? Who do I need to reconcile with or give restitution to? Because I was so forceful in what I did. And what did Jesus do when Peter used force in the garden to cut off a soldier's ear? But he healed it, didn't he? And he said, this isn't the time for that. Did Jesus go and accept his father's will and endure the hardship with a soul at rest? He did, didn't he? When he was facing the cross and his, that, that destiny was in front of him, he chose to be at rest with what the plan God had for him was, rather than use the power that would have been available to him for his own gain. The Bible should shape my mind, my affections, and my actions to be more like Jesus. But this only happens when we are formed by Scripture, not when we form Scripture to suit us. And sometimes the Bible doesn't do what it should, not because it's ineffective, but because our inaccuracy has changed its original attention, intention, even if it's just a little. This illustration may help you. In 1979, 257 people left New Zealand for a scenic flight to Antarctica. Unknown to the pilot, there was a two-degree error in the flight's coordinates. And most people thinking this wouldn't think it was that big of a difference, that it's still close enough to get where you want to go to do some sightseeing. But that two-degree error actually put the plane 28 miles east of the planned route that they had. In approaching the supposed location, they lowered their altitude below the cloud line so they could see, uh, the tourists could see uh, the beautiful scenery of Antarctica. The pilot had had years of experience but had never flown this route before. And little did they know that the wrong coordinates had put them headlong into Mount Erebus, an active volcano that rises more than 12,000 feet above the frozen terrain. Unfortunately and tragically, the plane crashed in the side of the volcano, killing everyone on board. Now, it's hard to imagine how this tragedy of magnificent proportions could have been caused by such a small mistake, a matter of just a few degrees. 
In reality, the effect of being just a few degrees off becomes more pronounced the longer the trip. If I'm going, if I'm going to go somewhere and I'm only off one degree off course, one step later, I'm maybe two inches off my original intended uh, location. It's not that much. It doesn't really matter. Two inches, not going to make a difference. After 100 meters, I'm going to be 5.2 meters off. It's not that big, but it's noticeable. Tom, when he's out hunting that, five, that 5.2 feet off, he's missing that deer completely. After five kilometers, I'm now 140 meters away. That's pretty big. That one degree is starting to make a significant difference. Now, if I were to try to travel the world from Cornwall in a straight line all the way around the earth, if I were to try and do that, but I'm one degree off to the south, where do you think I'll end up? Washington, D.C. That's pretty far, isn't it? That's quite a difference. If by chance you go to the sun, I don't know why you'd want to do that, you'd miss it by over 2 million miles, or kilometers, sorry. That's almost twice the diameter of the sun. All because you are one degree off in your calculations. That's pretty amazing. Now let's apply that to our lives in following God in Scripture. We take the meaning, God's meaning and intent of Scripture, and we just degree by degree go a little bit different in our direction. And then we allow that over time of our life to keep taking us in that direction rather than direction that God wanted us to go. And boy, do we not end up where God intended. There's a need to elevate the value of Scripture. There's a need to read it with clarity and purpose for transformation. Did you ever wonder why potentially scripture isn't transforming your life the way you thought it might? Maybe your interpretation of the scripture and your application of the scripture is off a little and it doesn't have the power that God wanted it to have in your life. There's a need not to subtly wedge it to mean what we want and to mean what we're okay with when it comes to transforming our lives because it has the power to go to much deeper places. In Hebrews 4.12, it says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. But if we twist it, we don't allow it to do those things. We don't allow it to transform us to look more and more like Jesus. The word of God is alive and active to lead you if you let it, if you study it and let it be what it is rather than changing it. So I encourage you to take time to read, to observe what it says, to see passages in their context. Allow that to guide your interpretation of what God intended to reveal to us. And that interpretation through the Spirit will lead you to application for your heart, your hands, and your head. And I know we all have potentially different learning styles. That we can all we don't all learn the same way. 
And I understand that. But I want to encourage you with something uh, of how we can learn. This is how people remember. 10% of people remember, they remember 10% of what they read. And so if you read through scripture, you're going to remember about 10% of what you read. People will remember 20% of what they hear. So if you hear it, you're more apt to actually uh, remember it. They remember 30% of what is demonstrated. So if you read scripture, you remember 10%. If you hear scripture, you'll remember 20%. If you uh, see scripture demonstrated, you see somebody living out scripture in front of you, you see them living out the definition of love, you're bound to remember at least 30% of that. You'll remember 50% of it by both hearing and demonstration. You'll remember 70% of it if you hear it, see it demonstrated, and you take notes. You'll learn to figure out what it means and, and put some notes in there. You'll remember 90% of it if you hear it, read it, see it demonstrated, take notes, and you try to practice it yourself. Did you realize that you can remember 90% of the scripture you read when you let it dig deep into your life? Are you going to remember it word for word? Probably not. But are you going to remember it truth for truth, spiritual depth? Are you going to allow it to transform you? 100%. If we apply all this to our reading and our study of the Bible, imagine the transformation that can take place in our lives. But let me remind you of something that I shared when we first started this series. To navigate life, only 21% of Christians in Canada even reflect on the Bible a few times a week. Again, regarding issues of daily life, daily life, 8 out of 10 Christians, 80% have something other than God's word guiding what they believe and how they behave. In trying to figure out and navigate our tough cultural moments, marriage, children, work issues, tough questions, crises moments, life-defining decisions, 80% turn to natural wisdom or worse, to guide their lives. God's word plays virtually no part in guiding their heads, hearts, and hands. Which means we don't either trust, we either don't trust God or we don't care. So I encourage you, if you don't already, find a way to deepen your reading and your understanding of God's word. Use the SOAP method if you, if you know that acronym. Scripture, observation, application, prayer. Or use what I talked about today, the inductive method. Observation, interpretation, application. Find a way to dig deep into God's scriptures to allow it to transform your life. Find study books to aid. Like I know um, Kay Arthur has a lot of inductive Bible studies that help walk you through it without giving you a lot of presupposed ideas of what scripture is supposed to mean. Learn with others how to truly, how truly amazing the Bible is and how trustworthy it is. And this is why Ephesians 4, 14 to 16 says this, Then we will no longer be infants 
tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As we grow in Christ, as we understand its word and apply it to our lives, that will be who we are. Instead of the 80% that are tossed by culture, tossed by concerns of the world. Let's let our God be faithful to us. Let's let him do what he says he will do. Let's let his word transform us and cut down to the bone and marrow between spirit and flesh to transform us into what he desires us to be. You're all so intelligent. You're all so passionate. And I know that we all can do this. And it will transform who we are even more. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the revelation that we have of you in Scripture. We thank you that you have wanted to be known. Who you are is not a mystery because you have made yourself known to us through your word and through your spirit. And so, God, we just pray that we would be a people here that allow your word and your spirit to transform us. That as we rely on Jesus for salvation and trust him for new life in you, God, that your spirit will continually refine us and make us more like you. That we will give up trying to be perfect in our own rights and allow you to be our perfection. And that we will grow into that as we continually allow your word and your spirit to lead us and guide us, applying what we hear to our lives. We thank you for this, Jesus. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Amen.